Good morning, gents, and happy St. Patrick's Day to you. After our Bible study, there's still time to run home and put on your green before you go to work. Hey, we've uh, come to a major turning point in Romans with our study last week. We've seen that in the Christian faith, the doctrinal is always attached to the practical. Truth, as the old Presbyterian Constitution used to say, truth is in order to goodness. Truth always leads to goodness. Doctrine always leads to practice. Belief always leads to behavior and so on. You cannot separate those two, even though some may try. The genuine Christian is the man who thinks at thoughts after Christ and who walks in Christ's footsteps. So he says to us in those first words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So since we've been saved by the mercy, the grace of God, all for your bodies as living sacrifices. And then we saw last week, the first thing he mentions is that we're to serve one another through the use of our spiritual gifts. But now we turn to verse 9, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. And by the way, we, we will have spent two amen sessions on Romans 12. If you've read Martin Lloyd-Jones' series on Romans, as I have a habit to do as we go through Romans, you will find that on Romans chapter 12, he preaches 35 sermons. <laughs> That's 330 pages in the book that you'd read on it. We're only spending two sermons, so we're obviously just ching, 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 skipping along the surface. But when we come to verse 9 uh, through 21, we'll see that here is the main concept of how we live for Christ. Here's the big idea, and it has to do with love. When Jesus summarized all the commandments, he said, the first one is you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said the second is likened to it, that we love our neighbors ourselves. So Jesus put these two together. He said the first tablet of the law, those first four commandments, have to do with your love for God. The second six commandments, the second tablet of the law, has to do with your love for one another. And uh, John, in his first epistle, says that if we say that we love God whom we've not seen and do not love our brother whom we do see, we're a liar. For we can't love God, uh, can't love God unless we love our brother. So John shows us how these two are uh, inextricably tied together. So we've got to be men of love. And it's very helpful then for us to look at this greatest ethical concept, which Paul lays out for us in detail here in chapter 12, and learn again this morning what kind of lives we're to be leading. Well, let's read through verse 9 through verse 21, and then we'll take these moments to try to unpack it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's notice first of all in these first 13 verses that the true Christian loves the saints. Verses 9 through 13. And we're going to see that the true Christian loves people regardless of who they are, whether they're saints or not saints, whether it's your mama or your enemy. The Christian has love 360 degrees, 24-7. That's the standard. So there you go. But we'll start with the easier group. Uh, we'll start with the saints. And we notice here, obviously, that the greatest mark of authentic Christianity is our love for one another. Because Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. Here's how they're going to know, that you love one another. So that marks out the church more than anything else, more than your beautiful building, uh, more than your wonderful worship service or your great praise band, uh, more than what you do for the city, quote, quote, it's how you love one another. What kind of community is there? Is this the beloved community or not? And when people enter into your fellowship and enter into your church, they can experience right away whether this is a place where people are loved, whether you all are loving each other, and whether that love overflows to other people. This is the most important mark that we have. Now let's notice that in verse 9, this love that we have for the saints, uh, we're to love the saints genuinely. He says, let love be genuine. And the word genuine just means non-hypocritical. So let's not have a bunch of phonies. Let's not have a bunch of back patters, good old boy type approach when we don't really have a deep love for each other. Let's be sure that it's a sincere love, not a love that's made of flattery. Flattery is positive things that are not true. Encouragement are positive things that are true. So we're to be encouraging one another, not flattering one another. Let your love be genuine. Let it be sincere. And no partisan spirits, no loving out of sentimentality, no loving, no scratching back because he's going to scratch my back. So much of our loyal relationships have to do with our own self-preservation. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about genuine love that surrenders your own self. It's a love at a cost to yourself. What did Jesus' love for us cost him? His whole life. It was a very painful death he died. 
So the love that we have for others is a love that is a sacrificial love. And so often you see this violated in father's love. Dads want want their teenagers to like them. So they basically go along with whatever their teenagers want. They don't probe too much into their lives. They don't insist too much out of their teenagers. They don't discipline them because the fathers want to be popular. That's not genuine love. That's self-referential manipulation. You're trying to get your children to like you. No, you're, you're not just to like them and they're not to like you. You're to love them regardless of how they respond to you. It, it takes courage. It takes sacrifice to be a faithful dad or a faithful husband. You often have to be unpopular with those that you love the most. Real love demands that. So Paul is saying, let your love for each other be genuine. You say, now, what is that love like? Well, keep reading. He says it begins with this, abhor what is evil. So in my relationships with every single human being, starting with my wife and my children and my extended family, going right through the church and to the world, my love must include an abhorrence of everything evil. And certainly as it pertains to that relationship. So I'll have a very loving relationship with my family, but when something intrudes in their lives or mine that is evil, I'm to abhor that. I stand against it. You know, we were just praying for the family of George Kirkendall. And those of you who knew George, here's a man who loved our community. Citizens for Community Values was the organization he founded. And he fought a pornography in this city for years and years and years. Why? Because he loves our city and he loves the Lord. Abhor what is evil. One of the greatest evils in our day still is abortion. How long have we been putting up with this in this country? And just allowing people who have committed no crimes to be put to death. And I'm, I'm quite sure if anybody saw a video of what it's like for a 12-week-old child to be aborted, they would never even think of it again because of the pain of being put to death by abortion for a, for a, a fetus. And you can see the fetus dodging uh, and weaving and trying to avoid uh, the, the needle and so on that's putting him to death. Uh, we just execute people with no cause. We abhor that. So yes, we love, and, and people will say that uh, we believers are hypocrites because we'll say we, we hate the sin and love the sinner. Really, is that hypocritical? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil. And these two things go together. And why do they go together? Because if I love my neighbor, the last thing I want my neighbor to do is to perpetrate a crime or to commit murder. So I'm trying to preserve both the mother and the child from all kinds of consequences of perpetrating evil. So real love is always a pure love. It's always a holy love. There is no other. So Paul says, abhor what is evil. And then he says, hold fast or marry yourself to what is good. Bind yourself to what is good. And seek to be a good man regardless of the consequences and regardless of the relational fallout from it. So basically what we're saying to the world as Christian men is that we want to have a good relationship with everybody. Everybody, no exceptions. 
But the only relationship we have to offer is a holy relationship, or we would say a healthy relationship. And so often we get involved in these dysfunctional relationships, these codependent relationships where this person's acting out and we're trying to accommodate them, or we're acting out and they're accommodating us. And it's just screwing. It doesn't lead to anything good. A true Christian man loves with a holy love and he has no other love to offer. You with me? So we offer only holy love. Now, if someone says, I don't like your holy love, we say, I'm so sorry. I wish you did because it will always be here available for you. So we offer holy love to anybody who will receive it. If they won't receive it, and they want unholy love or dysfunctional love, we do not have that in our menu. We don't have that available. And so if they decide not to have a good relationship with us, that would be their decision. But we abhor what is evil, we marry ourselves to what is good, and we love everybody, and we wish for them that they will respond in like kind. That's what Paul is saying. You've got to be courageous in your love. It has to be a particular type of love. Now, secondly, notice that the true Christian loves the saints zealously. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. So the, the, the word here, love one another, it's, it's not used very often, but it has to do largely with a family love. And then, of course, he says, he uses the word here, Philadelphia, brotherly affection. So both of these words are sort of familial words. And he's saying... Once someone comes into Jesus Christ and becomes a brother in Christ, you treat him like a brother, like a family member. Now, I know that we use the word brother in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we'll just talk of someone who's of the same race as brother. And certainly, I understand that. That means we've kind of come from the same nationality or ethnicity. Sometimes if we're in a labor union, we'll speak of our fellow laborers as brothers in the union. Uh, and I understand that. That's fine. You could even speak of fellow human beings as being my brothers and sisters. We all came from Adam and Eve. So there's a sense of which that's true. But when Paul uses the word in the New Testament, here's what he means. He, he means specifically those who have been born again by God. They have his DNA. They've been redeemed by him, adopted into his family. They're children of God by redemption, not just by creation. So he's speaking of other men and women, boys and girls, who have been brought into God's family through the new birth. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for them. Jesus loved them and died for them. Jesus came to rescue them, to make them part of his family. You're in that family, and therefore these people are your brothers. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying every one of us came from a family. And they were all dysfunctional to one degree or another, but you still love your brother. Uh, my older brother was a wild man. He, he's now head injured and has been for decades, but he was a wild man. And you had to watch out for him. But on the other hand, he was my brother. So, and I love him. And Paul says, you all know what it's like to have a brother or a sister or a family member. And he says, this is the way you, how you want to cultivate your relationship with other believers. You want to learn to treat them as brothers. Now you'll find that in the family of God, there, there's all kinds of dysfunction and brokenness because everybody's coming from a dysfunctional family. They bring their dysfunctions with them. And so when they think they want to create a spiritual brotherhood in the church, they have a lot of learning and a lot of changing to do to get there. 
and you're the one who's going to put up with them. And all the while, you're going to love them unilaterally if necessary, like a brother. That's what Paul is saying. And you must do it zealously. Look at this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Are you a, an athlete? Did you play high school football, basketball? Did you run track? Did you play baseball? Did you ever try to win a race? Did you ever try to win a game? Did you ever work out or train or develop yourself to accomplish something? Do you have competitive juices in business? Do you like to be number one? He says, okay, take all that stuff. Take all that testosterone and let's use it now to try to outdo one another in giving honor to the other brother. That's what he's saying to you. Take all that competitive spirit and try to win the battle of honoring your brother more than he honors you. Wow. Okay. Well, how do you do that? Look at Philippians chapter 2. And, of course, the, example, the best example is always Jesus Christ himself. And here Paul shows us, this is page 2282. 2282, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, so what is that mind? Verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Okay? Zero. He's not saying, try to get it down to about, you know, 80% of your life. You know, see if you can work it down to 70%. No, he says, zero, zero tolerance on arrogance and conceit and rivalry, rivalry. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what is this mind? It's the mind of one who thought he was, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on Good Friday, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, you've got this mind in you because you've been brought into union with Christ. And Christ came down from the heavenlies he is the second person of the Trinity and he, the word is kenosis. He emptied himself. He laid aside the accoutrements of his glory to take on flesh. And not only that, he died a humiliating death on the cross. But then look what God did. So God then exalted him to the highest place. And this is why Peter says to us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Your exaltation's on its way. Do you believe it or not? If you believe it, you will happily humble yourself now. If you question it, you'll try to grab for a little bit of the gusto here in your three score and ten. But if you know that he's going to exalt his sons, you wait for that day. 
And then you will happily lay aside any glory or honor in this broken, sinful, adulterous world. And realize this is not where you get your credit. Your credit's going to come from the Father. And your enthronement's going to be in another place. But here you'll wear the garb of the servant. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, get competitive about it and see what you can do to out-honor each other. We're so aware of our honor, so aware of our self-esteem, so aware of our reputations. He said, when you come to Jesus Christ and you are going to build brotherly relationships with each other, you begin to think about the reputation and the honor of your brothers. And you work now as a servant to build that honor up. It's a conversion. It's a total conversion of the way that you're thinking. So do it zealously. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Look how he just brings that verse in. You say, some scholars say, obviously Paul's just kind of quilt-like, patchwork-like, just pulled different aphorisms, different sayings, different ethical ideas, brought them in and just kind of lumped them together and mixed them up. No, no, no. We know Paul better than this. Have you read the first part of Romans? He's very meticulous in the way that he thinks. And Paul here is being meticulous. He's saying, look, I'm saying to you to be brothers to one another, but what I'm telling you is this is your service to the Lord. So don't think for a minute that you, you love the Lord and you're, you're in His army, you're doing His will, you're fighting His battles, and you don't love your brothers. you got another thought coming. He's saying, this is the service to the Lord. And he's saying, don't be slothful in your zeal for the Lord. Which is to say, when you're not loving your brothers as brothers, you're being slothful. You're being lazy in the Lord. And he says, be fervent in spirit. That word is white hot. So passionate. So take your passionate service for Christ. Your love for him for all that he's done for you. And as we approach Holy Week, you know what he's done for you. It's, it's just beyond your wildest dreams and imagination. That's how much he loves you. Now get white hot in your passion and display that passion in the way that you love your brothers. That's what he's saying. Now thirdly, the true Christian loves the saints patiently. Ah, I was afraid he's going to say that. And look at this. These are still theological concepts which shows us that our relationship with God is, is suffused through our social life. We're always thinking of God in our social life. We're thinking of our devotion to Him in our social life. When you love your wife, it's not just because you like the shape of her body or because she cooks a nice meal or she's sweet or something else. No, you're, you're thinking about Christ. And you're responding to your wife because it's your response to Christ. He loved you perfectly, and so you're loving your wife regardless of whether the toast is burned or whether you had sex last night or whatever it is. You're loving her because he's loved you. So he's, he's saying here, rejoice in hope. Why is that important in relationships? Because relationships don't go well, that's why. They're all goofed up. You can take your best friend and you're going to have moments when it's not going well. So are you just going to let your life fall apart and you say, what's the use? No, you rejoice in hope. Hope of what? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's sanctified and you're sanctified. And just like you're going to be rewarded and honored when you get home, 
You're also going to have your brother back fully. He'll be perfectly reasonable. He won't be defending himself anymore. He won't be counterattacking you. He won't be weird. He won't be cheating you. He won't be doing all this stuff. He won't be lying about you. He'll be sanctified. You'll be sanctified. And the relationship will be sanctified. Rejoice in hope. So when I look at anybody who's a real believer, I can see beyond our current relationship. I know it's going somewhere. And I know it's going to get infinitely better. So I'm not going to get discouraged about this problem or that problem or this conflict that has to be resolved or whatever. I rejoice in hope. Hope changes relationships. That's what he's saying to us. And then he says, be patient in tribulation. You say, why is he talking about tribulation when he's talking about brotherly love? If you ask that question, you've never tried to love the brother. I'm telling you now. If you really try to love like Christ loves, you're going to pay for it. What did, how did Christ pay? Well, he was tribulated because his dearest friends ran like scalded dogs when he was in his worst moment. That's tribulation. Paul was tribulated when he was preaching in Rome, when he was in prison, he was in prison for it, and the other preachers who were jealous of him began to preach more while he was in prison so he would get in more trouble. That's in Philippians chapter 1. That's called tribulation from your brothers. So he's saying, you've got to be joy, joyful in hope. You've got to be patient in tribulation. And where does your patience come from? You know where this is headed. You can wait. There's a dessert at the end. You may not like, you may not like the broccoli, but hey man, the ice cream with syrup, chocolate syrup is coming. Hang on there, be patient. And then he says, be constant in prayer. So how do I rejoice? How do I keep my mind on hope? How am I patient? You talk a lot, not to your brother, but to your father about your brother. So you got complaints about your brother. Your real complaint is with your father. So just take it to the father. He's the one who put you in this family. And he's the one, yeah, right. And let me tell you something else. He put those guys in your family. All right. That's what the father did. So you got a complaint, go talk to him about it and get it worked out with him. Stay constantly in prayer. Make this a divine encounter, not just a human encounter. God is present. He's active in these relationships. And he wants you to love genuinely, zealously, patiently. And then look at this. He wants you to love practically. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Jesus taught us this. He says, if your brother's in prison, you got to go visit him. If your brother's hungry, you got to feed him. If your brother needs clothes, you gotta, you got to clothe him. You need, to, you need to take care of him. He's your brother. And you know that the Bible says, Paul says to Timothy, if we don't take care of our family, we're worse than infidels. We're worse than unbelievers. And what Paul is saying is these people become your family. So we've got to take care of each other. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 4, when the church was first under revival, beginning to form up as a church, you'll read very clearly, there was not one unmet need among them. They really took care of each other. And from that chapter, many have said, this is the reason that all economies and all nations should be communists. There it is, Acts chapter 4. Well, as my friend Stuart Briscoe says, he says there's a difference between communism and Christianity. He says, in Christianity, we say, what is mine is yours. 
In communism, we say, what is yours is mine. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. You find that, yes, there is a form of communism, but it's a voluntary communism of the one who has freely, for spiritual motives, giving to those who do not have. Now, when the Christians don't do that, in a nation where people brag that it was founded by Christians, then you find Christians and non-Christians saying, well, that form of communism is not working. Let's try socialistic communism. Because they do want a better distribution of goods. They know that some people are taken care of around here and some are not. And that gap is increasing. And, you know, we've got a very strong socialist who's running for president right now. You're going to have more socialists running for president. And I say, as long as the wealthy people are continuing to see that gap grow without doing anything about it, they're inviting the socialists. So, okay, let's have at it. But where, how a nation ought to work is that those who have, who are, who are God's people, are very aware of those who do not have, and they divest themselves much more radically than we see happening now. Do you realize if you took the median gift, not the average gift because the wealthy people who give throw it out of kilter. I'm talking about the median gift. If you took all the gifts of Americans and you picked the middle one, do you know what percentage of that man's income would be at that median gift? 0.67%. That's less than 1%. That's how generous we are. And Paul is saying, you're just going to have to do a whole lot better than this. We're going to have to contribute to the needs of others. And so, of course, the church should be made up of a diversity of socioeconomic backgrounds. And if you're a wealthy person and you have more than the average person and you become a Christian, this is going to cost you. So don't think it doesn't. And you should not be able to join church without it immediately costing you. And I'm not just talking about your regular tithe. I'm talking about giving free will offerings to those who are in need. It's going to cost us if we are reaching out lovingly to a diverse socioeconomic group. Most of the neighborhoods in Memphis by a long shot have distress, serious economic distress. Some of them are in severe distress. About uh, half of our neighborhoods are in severe distress. And then about another 40% of them are in some distress. That means the major indices for economic health are in arrears uh, in those neighborhoods. Uh, we have 11% uh, of our population who live in neighborhoods of choice, like East Memphis, where we're not in distress. Only 11%. Think about that. So if you live in a neighborhood of choice, you're surrounded by people of need, and many of them are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that we should contribute to the needs of the saints. So our first concern is do we have a brother or sister who's in this city and also in this world who is in distress in such a way that I can help? And of course, we all have to be aware of ways in which we sometimes try to help and we don't help at all. Sometimes we throw money instead of really giving it wisely. If you give it wisely, you'll actually give more, but you'll give it better. But most people just throw a bone out there and just hope it helps in some way, and it usually doesn't because you're not giving very intelligently. But Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. So it seems to me that in all of our churches, 
we should have an intelligent approach to helping people who are in financial arrears. And a lot of times it's because of their personal mismanagement. But a lot of times it's not. It's because circumstances have happened to them that were beyond their control. And sometimes people will go for 40 years and they'll think, you know, everybody who's in that place, they just weren't responsible until it happens to them. I've seen this happen over and over again. And then they realize, you know what? Sometimes there are circumstances out there beyond your control that you didn't cause, and they do just really wallop you. We ought to be ready for both cases. With the one with circumstances beyond its control, we just surround him, and we, we give support, financial support, prayer support, verbal support. For the one who is mismanaging certain things in his life, we come around him too in the same way. But we also say, also say brother, you, you also need some coaching. Let us coach you. And let us hold you accountable for it. That's all family love. So we treat one another like family in practical, even financial ways. And he says, seek to show hospitality. Open your homes to one another. Be kind to one another. And you see, when Jesus showed his love for his disciples, what did he do? He did something very practical. Their feet were burning with the dirt and the heat of the, of the walk to dinner. So what did he do? He took a towel and a bowl and he washed their feet for them. It was very humbling, but it was very practical, something they needed. And Jesus showed us that real love always issues into practical ways in which we can help. Do you want to love your wife? Just get your head into her life for a minute. Just think about her life. And think about her felt needs and what she perceives to be what she needs from you. And then you practically perform that, whatever it is. And some of, sometimes we have to do it very counterintuitively because it's not the way we would want somebody to love us, but it's the way she needs to be loved. This is what Paul is saying. You love one another by contributing to the needs of one another. And in the early church, I won't take the time to read it, but there was a lawyer, Aristides, who was defending the early Christians in the second century before the king who was persecuting them. And he pled, pled for these Christians. He said, Oh, king, these Christians, they love each other. And if they perceive that somebody's hungry, they will skip a meal in order to feed their brother. And he goes on and on about the things these Christians are doing to care for each other. We, had, we have in our legacy a reputation for laying down our lives for each other and holding each other up. That's what the church is to look like to the outside world. That's how we'll know that we're the disciples of Jesus because that's exactly the way Jesus acted. And when we're acting like that, we display to the world that that's who we are. That's what Paul is saying. The true Christian loves the saints. Okay, let's look at verses 14 through 21. The true Christian also loves the EGRs. You say, what in the heck is EGR? Extra grace required. All right. The true Christian loves the EGRs. To live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with those we know, that's another story. Now look at verse 14. First of all, the persecutors. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now if you look at Matthew 5, you'll find that Paul says that we are to rejoice when we're persecuted because we're being identified with the prophets. And then he says, bless and pray for those who persecute you in verse 44 of chapter 5. So in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the key ideas 
is that we love people who are trying to tear us apart. I'm telling you, this is the opposite of what you see in the Trump campaign. Isn't it? Really. What, what he's doing is just the opposite of the Christian ethos. Where someone attacks you, you just immediately attack them back. That one of the most vindictive campaigns, and I think one of the most vindictive presidencies anybody would ever see, it's the opposite of what Jesus teaches. So what Jesus is teaching Christian brothers is that when you're persecuted, and thinking especially about being persecuted for your faith, you don't just strike back. You strike back, well, you do strike back, but you strike back with blessing. It's counterintuitive. It's not the way fallen men think. But you, and it takes enormous discipline because everything in our flesh wants to tear down the person who's tearing us down. And Paul says that's not the way we operate. Now, if you're a Christian politician, of course, you have to answer charges. You have to show how your campaign and your character and your program differ from your opponent. And you also have to make those contrasts in a real way. But there's a gentlemanly way to do it, an honorable way to do it, and a dishonorable way to do it. So I'm not saying that you never say anything bad about what somebody else is saying. I'm not even saying that you never say anything bad about another person. I mean, if you talk honestly about me, you'll come up with all, if you're going to be honest, there are all kinds of bad things. And then you can say, well, I love him anyway. And, and, and you'll, you'll mix that in with a few good things that you scrounge around and think of. But, so I'm not saying that we never say bad things, but I'm saying there's a loving way to do it. It's like treating someone like family. Of course, I know my, my sister's problems. I know my mother's problems, but I don't want to hear you talking about them. But I can be honest about them within the family, and we're in family. Here he's saying, for those who are persecuting you, you bless them. Now, today is St. Patrick's Day. And a lot of people, unfortunately, just think of St. Patrick's Day as a good day to go down and get some Guinness beer, you know, hang out with the guys at the bar, be a little wild on St. Patrick's Day. What an irony. Let me tell you about Patrick. He was born in the 5th century. These will be the 400s. He was born just after St. Augustine died, to give you some feel for the timing. So we're 1,500 years ago plus. St. Patrick was born in, in Roman Britain, Great Britain. When he was 16 years old, some pirates from Ireland kidnapped him out of Britain, took him to Ireland, and made him a slave for six years. And his work as a slave was largely shepherding sheep. After six years, he escapes and gets back home. While he was in slavery, he gets converted to Christianity. You say, how'd that happen? Well, it happened because both his dad and his grandfather were believers. And the seeds have been planted. And the Lord really worked on his heart while he was in slavery. And so he goes back to Britain. And after a few years there, uh, he has a vision to go back to Ireland the place that had kidnapped him, enslaved him, persecuted him. And he, he's, I'm sure, thinking, are you sure, Lord? But the Lord puts on his heart to go back to Ireland, no longer as a slave of men, but as a slave of Christ. And he goes back to share the gospel. Now, I don't know if you know this about Patrick, but he led thousands of people to Christ. Planted churches everywhere. If you read Thomas Cahill's book, how Ireland saved Western civilization or how he saved civilization. 
you'll see that when the Mongols were destroying Europe in the Middle Ages, it was the missionaries from Ireland who came over and reestablished what we would know as Western sort of Christianized sort of civilization in Europe. Where did those people come from in Ireland? St. Patrick. That's the reason that he's the patron, one of the patron saints of Ireland. So I'm wearing my green today. You know, I've just gratitude for this courageous man. When he went back to Ireland to evangelize, he was constantly persecuted. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. But he refused to take vengeance against those who had previously enslaved him as a teenager and who were now persecuting him as a preacher. And he just continued to bless those who persecuted him. That's how we have a church in Ireland. That's how we had Irish missionaries to call because St. Patrick decided he was going to bless his persecutors and continue to offer Christ to them. Gentlemen, this is the way the gospel gets shared. This is the way the kingdom grows. Our fastest growing churches right now, one is in Iran, where conservatively we have 500,000 believers. Most missionologists think we have a million believers in Iran. Growing very rapidly, they're being persecuted, and they've made a decision. They're going to bless their persecutors. And we often look at these nations and just think, well, I'd just like to drop a nuclear bomb on them, just get rid of them. Well, you're not thinking like a Christian. Christians bless their persecutors. I'm not saying that we're naive. I'm not saying we don't defend ourselves. I'm not saying that we don't have a, 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 a na good Navy and a good Air Force and Marines. I, I believe in all that. For the sake of justice, I believe in that. For the sake of love, I believe in that. But I also believe that we as believers are most concerned about the evangelization of our enemies. And you can't do that if you don't pray for and bless those who are persecuting you. Now, secondly not just our persecutors, but the emotionally demanding. You have anybody like that in your life? So people who are just happy, happy, happy. You say, oh, they're always just happy. They just have a happy personality. They don't face real life. I got problems. I'll let them just go be happy, but I'm going to work on my problems. No. Paul says, look, you love people, enter into their joy. Find out what they're happy about. Get yourself happy too. Come on. Even Eeyore could be happy every once in a while. So Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Become an expert celebrator. And then he says, weep with those who weep. Go to the funerals. Go to the visiting hours. Go to the hospital. Go next door. Go where someone has a child who's on drugs. Go, go, go. And weep with those who weep. Sympathize with those who sympathize, who need sympathy. That's what Paul is saying. It's a very demanding job to be a Christian because you'll find the whole range of emotions are being called out of you and you have to cultivate some emotions that some of you have been suppressing for decades for a variety of reasons. You just kind of steady Eddie, just right on through, you know, just grit your teeth. He say, no, stop and notice what's going on in people's lives and enter into it. Thirdly, he's saying you must love the lowly, the poor, those who are not held in respect by society. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So don't just hang out with a fast crowd. Don't just be there with a cool crowd. And one reason that we don't evangelize any better than we do is because you've got the same old golf foursome you had 10 years ago. And those three guys have already heard the gospel and they don't want to hear it again. And you still play golf with them. Hey, it's time to get another foursome. 
Find somebody who doesn't have anybody to play golf with. Go play golf with them. And if they're not considered, if they're considered a nerd, all the better. It's going to be good for your character. Go out and play golf with the nerds. All right? I'm serious. That's what Paul is saying. Who gave you the idea that you're supposed to be in the fast crowd? That you're supposed to be one of the cool guys? Well, you're supposed to get along with cool people, but you never were supposed to be one of the cool guys when you become a Christian. You're supposed to hang out with everybody equally. You're supposed to show respect equally to everybody and take the consequences of being called a nerd yourself. That's what Paul is saying. It takes great discipline. You have to think about it. You have to be intentional about it because all of our instincts are to get with a crowd that has a social updraft because if we get in that updraft, we'll be drafted up too. That's the way it works. Now, lastly, he says, look, you've got to love the persecutors. You've got to love the emotionally demanding people. You've got to love the lowly. You've got to love your enemies, for heaven's sakes. Literally, for heaven's sakes. You know, this is not one of our specialties, loving our enemies. I remember the story of a truck driver who came into the diner, and uh, he just got his eggs and his bacon. It was early in the morning. And uh, while he was eating his breakfast at the diner bar right up on the counter, three motorcyclists came in with a motorcycle gang. And one sat on this side and one sat on this side and one, one stood behind him. They said, hey, man, how you doing? He said, I'm doing fine, doing fine. What you eating there? Looks like some eggs. It looks like you got a little grits there. And they took a fork, took the grits and put it right on his head. Hey, hey well, how's that feel? You have grits in your head. <laughs> And the other guy said, you got some coffee? It feels a little cool. Let me see if it, tell me if this is cool enough. He pours a coffee on his head. And so the man realizes he's probably not making much progress here. So he just gets up and he puts a tip on the table and then he goes over and pays his bill. And he just walks right out the door. Well, the motorcycle gang is sitting there laughing, you know, hitting each other on the shoulder and everything. And they said to another guy who was at the bar, he said, that guy was a wuss. Just a total wimp. He just, he was just a nothing. And the guy who was sitting there looks out the window and says, yeah, he really was a wimp. He's also a bad driver. He just drove over three motorcycles. (laughs) That's a great story, isn't it? I love that story. Every passive aggressive person loves that story. But Paul says that's, that's not how we work. He says we've got to love our enemies. We've got to figure out how to do it. I'm not always sure exactly what it means to love an enemy. I'm really not. Because on one hand, sometimes your enemies have to be restrained and have to be opposed and have to be stood up to. But at the same time, we must always, 24-7, every second, be loving them. That's a real discipline, but it's a discipline we're given. It's peculiarly ours. And Jesus shows us how to do it. He stood up to Pilate, sometimes by saying nothing, sometimes by just saying a word. He stood up to Caiaphas while the eggs were being poured on his head, while he was being completely abused. He showed you how to do it in Holy Week, how to love your enemies. We've got to do it. It's a distinctive of the Christian man. No one else does this. Think about it. No other religion teaches men to love their enemies. That's the reason that 
you'll find in, in the military tradition in, in America that when your enemy is wounded, if he's no longer a threat, you put him on your shoulder and you carry him to the infirmary. Where do you think that came from? It came from Romans 12. So we've been influenced by, we can see little pictures of it, how we've been influenced through the centuries. We've got to pick this up and reignite it because this is our legacy. We're a people who love our enemies. And Jesus made it very clear on the Sermon on the Mount that we must love our enemies. Look how God loves them. He sends his son, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He brings rain, pours it on the just and the unjust. And he says, I want you to do the same thing. He says, as a matter of fact, I want you to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect at the end of chapter 5 in Matthew. So the perfection of the Father's love for enemies, even in the natural order, much more even in redemption, we're to imitate. That's what we're being told here. And he says, look in verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Can we just sit on that for just a minute? If possible, as much as it depends upon you, here's what he's saying. Of course, some people, even inside the church, because you have unconverted people in the church, unfortunately, and certainly the people in the world, will oppose you in ways where you cannot get that relationship straight. They will not come to reason. They will not repent. They will not confess what they've done. And you can't have a healthy relationship with them. And sometimes what men will do is then say, well, that person's impossible. And you write them off and you've just written off your obligation to be a Christian man in that relationship. That's what happens. So once someone shows themselves to be either unconverted or unreasonable or irreconcilable to you, you then cease to act like a Christian. Here's what Paul is saying, as far as it depends upon you. So here's the question you always ask yourself. What have I contributed to this conflict? What's my part in this? Be sure that above all things, you put your finger on that because the instinct is you've got a long list on your legal pad of all the things he did against you. Fine. I'm not saying you don't have that list. I'm just saying your big list ought to be the one over here. What did you do to contribute to the downfall of this relationship? And be sure you've confessed your sins. And you've asked forgiveness for what you did. Now you've done your part. You've done your part when you confess your sins and you say to the person, I'd love to have a healthy relationship with you. If there's anything I can do to do that, please let me know. I want that. Now you've done your part. So we're never excused because of the misbehavior of a dysfunctional person. Doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. Of course we have boundaries. If you only allow a healthy relationship, that means there'll be boundaries. Because most people want an unhealthy relationship with you and you have to create boundaries that show, no, I want a healthy relationship with you. So here he's saying, if possible, as far as it depends upon you. And then he says, look, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will... He burning coals on his head. Now, scholars argue about what this is. Some say there's an old Egyptian tradition, and I think this was in Stott's commentary, that when you're repenting, you 
put ashes on your head and it has coals in it. Fine. But I tend to think that it's pretty obvious what he's saying here. That you're not to avenge yourself precisely because you will be avenged later. And the Lord will do it. And he will heap the burning coals on the, he will judge the evildoer. So don't you do it physically now. The Lord's going to do it physically later. What you do now is to love. And by that, you're heaping the burning coals on his head. If he doesn't respond to that, the whole responsibility of the judgment of God is upon his shoulders. Those are burning coals on his head. So don't worry about revenge. When you've done everything possible and you've cultivated a heart of love and you've confessed your sins and you've invited to have a healthy relationship, the burden of judgment now is on that man. And it's off you. And so we see that we love our enemies if we believe in the final judgment. If you don't believe in the final judgment, you're having a hard time with it, you're really doubtful of it, you're going to try to wreak vengeance in this life and in this time. Because every one of us has a sense of justice. We were built, we were made with a sense of justice. Wrongs need to be righted, evils need to be corrected, so on. We all have that sense. It's from the Lord. What Paul is saying is stretch your timetable out and realize that all the wrongs will be righted when Jesus Christ comes back. And you wait for that patiently, prayerfully, joyfully, hopefully. You're waiting for that. And therefore, you're a man of peace. That's what Paul is saying. This is the gospel dynamic psychologically and socially in a Christian man's life. And this is gospel living. And if you're not living this way, you've not yet received the gospel. Now, we're all imperfect. We all need to be forgiven. We all fail. But we all repent. Repent back toward the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life and died on Good Friday for nothing more than enemies. Let's pray. Father, your enemy love is astonishing and we are the beneficiaries thereof. And therefore we praise your name and ask that we may imitate you even today. In Jesus' name, amen.